Here's a question for anyone out there who's in private practice. Have you met Jane? Jane is a practice management system whose mission is to help the helpers. They've got everything you need to run your practice, and they'd love to hear your story, so check them out at jane.app. That's J-A-N-E dot A-P-P. Hello and welcome back to OnPsych, the podcast of the Ontario Psychological Association. I'm Dr. Jonathan Douglas, your host. I'm a psychologist with a private practice in Barrie, Ontario, and I'm a former president of the Ontario Psychological Association. And with me today are Dr. Karen Dick and Dr. Melissa Thiessen. <laughs> yeah, I got it right. <laughs> and they are joining me. They have a, a fascinating website called intentionaltherapist.ca. And this is a, a it's a really fascinating thing. But first, let me uh, introduce my, my two guests to you. So Dr. Karen Dick completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at the University of South Dakota and currently works in private practice in Oak Bank, Manitoba. Whereabouts is Oak Bank? Uh, it's just east of Winnipeg, so it's a very short drive from Winnipeg. I figured it had to be close to Winnipeg. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was really interested in your bio because it looks like the inverse of mine. Because I, I got my doctorate in University of Windsor. My first job was in North Dakota. And we used to bop up to Winnipeg all the time because my wife's family was from Winnipeg. And uh, so we spent a lot of time in Winnipeg while we were living in, in North Dakota. And uh, so <laughs> your history and mine looks very, very similar. And you are presently the executive director of the Manitoba Psychological Society. So holy cow, <laughs> you and I have a lot of, uh, a lot of experiences in common. Karen spent the bulk of her career working with the Rural and Northern Psychology Program at the University of Manitoba's Department of Clinical Health Psychology and is a former head of the Rural and Northern Psychology section of the Canadian Psychological Association. So welcome to you. And Melissa, Dr. Melissa Thiessen, is completing her, has completed her doctoral degree in clinical psychology at McGill University and currently works in private practice in Ottawa, Ontario. Melissa also previously worked in the Rural and Northern Psychology Program at the University of Manitoba, which I assume is where the two of you met. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Very good. And as well as served as the Education Director for the CPA, overseeing the organization's accreditation and continuing education activities, which has got to be a pretty big task, I would think. Right? It was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were involved in the... Yeah, the convention programming and all that kind of a thing as well. That that would be a huge task indeed. So so welcome. So tell me about what the two of you have done. Well, first, we're we're so happy to be able to speak with you today. And so basically, our um, our website, intentionaltherapist.ca, like you mentioned, and thank you so much for your kind words about it as well. It's an initiative that Karen and I really started to help female mental health professionals, and honestly, first and foremost, ourselves included, uh, stay healthy and happy through intentional and creative and playful self-care. And 
the big reason that we felt there was a need for this is because we know that there's so many other female mental health professionals like us who really love what they do, uh, but are maybe challenged by trying to balance other caregiving roles uh, in our personal lives, right? Uh, so whether it's young children like myself or aging parents like Karen or anything in between. And of course, we often struggle with um, making self-care a priority as much as we might value it. And uh just face challenges with time, energy, or even ideas. Uh, and so our, our goal with Intentional Therapist has really been, uh, first of all, to normalize the importance of self-care in our profession, and, and then really to create a dialogue about its importance so that this is not just something you fit in when there's time. It's really something that's foundational to our work. And, um, and also our hope is that we can create a thriving community of like-minded mental health professionals and be a sort of a hub of resources um, that people can access on a, on an ongoing basis, just so that our self-care can be more intentional, more creative, more playful, and again, be this foundational part of our work, not something that's just nice to have or sounds like a good idea, but, you know, sort of, we'll get to it eventually. Absolutely. And there's, I was poking around the website, which I think is a, it's a, it's a beautiful website. Uh, the blog is fantastic. I, I, to, I, I couldn't help but notice that you post on a weekly basis, which is really impressive to More me. I mean, I, you know, I, I love writing, writing, you know, and, and, you know, sort of getting into that sort of that creative side and, and, and that kind of a thing I think is a, is, is a really important part of my own self-care in a lot of ways. And it's not something I'm making nearly enough time for, you know, and it, I, I, it's another example of, of, of exactly that. But it's, it's a, it's, tell me about the, the unique pressures that are on female therapists. I think there's maybe two parts to that answer. I think part of it is just some of the challenges that come uh, with working as a mental health professional, regardless of your gender. I think there's a lot of factors that that play a role um, in why it's important for us to take care of ourselves and some of the challenges. I think like other helping professions, the mental health field just naturally draws people who are uh, comfortable in caregiving roles and who really value it. And unfortunately, we know just by their very nature, uh, people who uh, value uh, the caregiving role often aren't particularly good at putting putting themselves uh, first. You know, we're, we're pretty good at instead putting clients, our loved ones, paperwork ahead of our own, our own wellness. So I think that's one component that's so important to, to recognize. Um, I think another piece that really has resonated for me is that through my training, I was never really, uh, I never really had an opportunity to learn about what Nora Cross and Vandenbos talk about as the hazards of our work. And I, th I think that is so important to be aware of the hazards. Um, one thing I really found interesting that they mentioned in, in their book, Leaving It at the Office, was uh, uncertainty of success was identified by 75% of mental health practitioners as their number one stressor. Um, so it's things like that, right? And certain client presentations um, that are just particularly stressful for our line of work. 
Uh, Norcross and Vandenbos even talk about how just the fact that we rarely see people at their best can influence our worldview. And some of the stress that comes with maintaining kind of that empathic, mature, kind, hopeful presentation in the face of all of our clients' presentations. And I, I think those hazards um, can, can contribute to us holding some limiting beliefs that can interfere with self-care. And some of them, I think, are, you know, the, the ideas that we should be able to help everyone. And if if we're not feeling particularly helpful, it means either we're not working hard enough or we need to uh, work harder, put more hours in. So I think that can, you know, some of those work hazards and the limiting beliefs that go along with them can really make self-care difficult. Um, I think another piece is often we want to believe, perhaps very naively so, that we're just naturally better at coping with stress. And so it's not as important for us to, to pay attention to self-care and be more proactive. And, you know, again, I think that can contribute to us perhaps being reluctant to seek out even more formal supports um, that we may very well need, such as actually accessing uh, therapy for ourselves. And I think the other piece is, unfortunately, our work environments can really contribute to limiting beliefs that make self-care particularly challenging for us as well. Uh, you know, the idea that um, uh, I think many of us, if we've been in, in the public health system, have probably encountered messages of, you know, we just need to work harder with less. Um, we're in situations where we don't get a lot of administrative support. Um, we're expected to have excessive caseloads. And, and I think the other message that we often get from the government, um, just by the fact that they've tended to prioritize physical health and pharmacological treatments, is the idea that mental health uh, doesn't really matter or they devalue uh, therapy as compared to pharmacological strategy. So I think for mental health professionals overall, those are a lot of the factors that can make self-care a bit more challenging, but also highlight the, the reasons why we should be engaged in self-care. And maybe I'll, I'll let Melissa talk a little bit more about some of the things specific uh, to, to women. Yeah, thanks, Karen. And uh, of course, you know, Jonathan, as, as you were mentioning, you know, uh, you were resonating with some of the things we talked about on our, our website and our blog posts. And so, of course, we're not saying that only women, uh, that only female mental health professionals need to attend to their self-care and that the things we talk about are only relevant to women. Absolutely, male mental health professionals need to be addressing their self-care as well. But, but definitely, there are some unique factors impacting uh, women. And not surprisingly, um, the first starts with gender socialization. So women uh, tend to still um, receive very different messages than men uh, from the time that they're born, essentially, right? Growing up, uh, girls receive different messages than boys when it comes to caregiving roles. And so uh, there is actually a, a book that came out just in the last couple of years called uh, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by uh, actually two sisters, Amelia and Emily Nagoski. And they, they basically refer to this idea 
as human giver syndrome. So what they describe it as, it's basically this collection of personal and cultural beliefs and behaviors that get transmitted primarily to women, not exclusively to women, but primarily to women, to females, that that kind of equate our meaning in life from giving to others from and as well as being pretty, being happy, not rocking the boat, being generous to others, and and most importantly, being attentive to the needs of others. And just the reality is, in various forms, this is the message that many women receive throughout their lives. So, um, so we come into these roles as professional caregivers with this background of feeling as though you have to uh, put others' needs before your own. That this is, you know, as I said, equated with uh, what gives you worth as a person, essentially. And of course, everybody is maybe going to believe that to differing degrees. But it's it's a it's a background message, right? It's like it's it's in the air, it's in the water. And so this really is going to influence, like Karen was saying, some of those limiting beliefs that are maybe going to be quite different for a female in a professional caregiving role as opposed to a male in a professional caregiving role. Uh, so, so that's certainly the, the number one factor impacting female mental health professionals. But then just really quickly, there's, I think, related to this, there's also been some really fascinating studies uh, in uh, time use uh, and uh, finding, for example, that um, leisure time is, and if we're sort of defining leisure time more broadly as, you know, time to engage in just enjoyable pursuits, uh, women and men have very different uh, constellations of their leisure time. And right. uh, and for example, uh, at least historically, when these first, you know, maybe almost 100 years ago now, I think they started these studies. And in the beginning, number one, it was mostly men who were the researchers. <laughs> and number two, taking care of children was coded as part of women's leisure time. Pretty sure right. most women would not consider taking care of children as leisure time. So, yeah, 100 years ago, a lot of women had uh, servants. Right? You know, yeah, you know the, yeah. the middle class women that would be studied, right, would often have these, these servants available to, to step in and help out. You know, and things are obviously very, very different. We're now dealing with, you know, two income families, you know, and uh, if we were lucky. Right. And yeah, the the, the pressure is on women for the, uh, you know, the, the child care demands. And, and you know, mm-hmm. as, as Karen's experiencing the uh, the sandwich generation. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's very, very intense. And know? just really and, quickly on, on your point, Jonathan, about two income families. So the other thing that's really fascinating from the time use studies is that even though women are currently um, spending many more hours in the workforce than they did previously, they're still primarily responsible for the childcare when when children mm-hmm. are, are in the picture, right? They're still spending more time on housework, childcare than men in, in general, right? Again, not always yes. the case, but as an aggregate, this is what's happening. And, yeah. and, and part of the, the challenge too is that uh, these studies have also shown that men's leisure time, even if it's not being coded you know, differently than women's with children being included, men often have longer stretches of leisure time, sort of uninterrupted stretches of leisure time, whereas women's leisure time often because of the childcare aspects or parent care aspects or other aspects um, 
women's leisure time often tends to come in shorter stretches of time and is more mm. interrupted, which some people have termed a time confetti. And again, I think that's a concept a lot of women can really relate to. And so you can see how all of these factors, sort of the things that Karen mentioned that generally impact us as mental health professionals, but then specifically um, these factors impacting on, on women, all of these things working together are, are going to make it a lot more challenging uh, in a lot of yeah. cases for women to be sufficiently and comprehensively attending to their own self-care. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you said, I mean, there's, there's a lot of this, of course, that, you know, as I think, you know, men can relate to, but the pressures on women are clearly more intense, right? You know, we, we men seem to have a little bit of an easier uh, uh, go, you know, in, in terms of striking that balance, because we, in a sense, we have the, the, the privilege of frequently being able to say, no, I'm too busy, right? Women often don't have that. <laughs> Right. You know, it's like, who's going to be picking up the kid, you know, at precisely 530. Right. You know, who has to make sure that session wraps up at that time, you know, that kind of a thing, you know, and, you know, if it's, you know, that often, you know, on average, as you say, you know, will fall, uh, fall to the women. So tell me about self-care. What does self-care look like when it's being done well or when it's not being done well? question because that term gets thrown around a lot and and in some ways um i think the fact that it is used so much almost uh can can cause us to kind of ignore the term or devalue it um but uh, you know really self-care is something that we see as integral to our our work actually um and it's something that really needs to be attended to on a regular basis not you know we, we certainly don't see it as um, kind of that half day at the spa that people set up every two months or six months or what have you. Um, it's really important for us as uh, professionals to take care of ourselves because essentially, if you think about it, uh, we are our tools at our job, just as surgical instruments are the tools for a surgeon. And so taking care of us um, is just so important to that. So, you know, we see self-care as really kind of a very broad concept in, encompassing both thoughts and behaviors that promote wellness across a number of dimensions, such as um, physical, emotional, intellectual, professional, um, spiritual well-being, and also that promote balance between uh, work and life. Um, ideally, really, self-care is a dynamic, uh, process that changes with uh, changes to our situational factors. And it's it's very individual. Um, there was an article that was written by Maren Zen and, and some of her colleagues in 2018 that defined self-care as something that's purposeful and includes self-awareness and self-compassion. And we certainly really agree with all of those components. And I, I think, you know, the self-awareness and self-compassion are so important because you know, we know thoughts and behaviors are really interconnected. And so self-awareness and self-compassion are so important at um, becoming aware of some of the limiting beliefs and their impact on our self-care and, and being able to modify some of that. And, you know, we recognize self-care maybe includes some of those common factors we hear about, right? Getting enough sleep, exercise, etc. cetera. Um, but we realize it's much more than that. And 
even though some of us might have the same components as part of our self-care, the dosing might actually look very different depending on our, our individual needs and what really replenishes each of us. Um, similarly, work-life balance might look very different depending on a person's uh, situation, life stage, uh, etc. So I think essentially for us, self-care means finding a way to connect with a more, uh, what feels like a more natural state for ourselves, where it doesn't feel like we are uh, excessively using energy, where we're feeling kind of drained at the end of a day or at the end of a week. Um, so very much a broad term, I think, from, from our perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of, you know, just your most recent blog post, you know, the one on looking up, right? And because, you know, one of the things I've been intrigued by, we went to uh, Europe, you know, uh, uh, back when it was possible to do things like that. And visiting cathedrals, which is not something I've ever done personally, right? But from an architectural perspective, right? And stepping into cathedrals and the way that they urge you to to look up you cannot resist you know lifting your eyes right and that experience you know which is literally like when you're in tune to it right it's it's an energy shift right and it's just a simple little example of of you know the, the relationship between taking care of yourself and monitoring you know as you describe it your energy not necessarily energy as that drive and ability to do work right but energy like that emotional centeredness as well right that that sort of that that quality of of what we're feeling inside so why are therapists so bad at doing this well i, I think it does go back to um some of the factors we already talked about right you know the fact that just naturally draws those uh, folks who are comfortable in caregiving roles and you know again really us not being aware of the hazards and I, I think if we're not aware of the hazards right it's it's very easy to um, uh, feel like we're doing something wrong there's there's uh, something about us that's causing us to find our job as stressful um, so I, I think, again, that just highlights some of the, the limiting beliefs, right? Um, and the idea that we're supposed to be just naturally good at doing this. So we're less reluctant to reach out and talk to others about some of the struggles that we're having, or if we're feeling not particularly helpful uh, with our clients, etc. So, you know, I think all of those factors that make uh, that contribute to why it's so important for us to practice self-care are also the same factors that can make it really difficult. Um, but again, right, I think we do need to think of ourselves as, as the tools of our trade and how important it is to take care of ourselves. Because, you know, there, we know the importance of the therapeutic alliance in uh, therapeutic outcomes. And there's also a lot of research that shows that if we're not taking our care of ourselves, our ability to secure and maintain a good therapeutic alliance is also diminished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of, you know, 
so many thoughts there. I mean, you know, the uh, one thing I was thinking of, you know, look at that parallel. You know, I do a lot of work with uh, first responders, right? And that, you know, the parallel with that, well, I'm supposed to be strong. I'm supposed to be able to handle this. I'm supposed to be able to just suck it up and carry on, right? And we, in a sense, fall prey to the same error, right? I'm supposed to be able to sit here and absorb all of this stress, right? And I even get a kick out of it sometimes when, you know, my uh, my clients will sometimes say, oh, my God, I could never do your job. You know, I was like, yeah, my job is listening to you tell me what you've had to go through. <laughs> you know, Trust me, yours is worse. Right. You know, and I tr- truly believe that. But, you know, they're they're also not wrong that sitting here for eight hours a day listening to stories of horror really can get a bit, you know, heavy at times. Right. And, it you know, it ends up having a, a bit of an impact, you know. One of the solutions, right, that I, I, I see emerging out of, uh, you know, your work is this, this concept of, of creativity, playfulness, and fun, which I really relate to because I think that is such a huge part of what I do, right? I think it's a, it, it, sort of a natural, um, uh, you know, sort of using myself, you know, in, in, in the therapeutic process you know, humor to me is just, it's so important, right? And I couldn't imagine, you know, uh, really, I can't imagine going through a single session without laughing, right? Like, it's just got to be there. It is there every single time. You know, there are moments when, you know, I have the choice between saying something deep and profound and therapeutic and making a joke, and I'll go for the joke, and it works. <laughs> I really believe it works in deepening that. But tell me about, you know, your concept of, of creativity and how that plays into this. Yeah, thank you so much for for highlighting that, Jonathan. And <clears throat> I think one of the reasons that uh, that this was so important for Karen and I, not only I think probably similar to yourself, it's something that just resonates for us personally, but very much so professionally as well. And, and I think especially when we have these jobs that are so emotionally demanding, we need something to counterbalance that, right? And, uh, and play and creativity very much offers that. And, and in fact, uh, you know, even in areas completely removed from therapy, uh, there's a lot of talk of the, the benefits of creativity and play because especially creativity and we've talked we've talked about some of this in some of our, our blog posts and newsletters as well the the thing with creativity is that it's on a really basic fundamental level it's about using our hands right creating something tangible and and using our hands is actually a big part of what makes us human um, this is something that, you know, it's basically using tools. That's what separates us from other beings. So it's it's actually um, a really important part of, of being human and being alive to be able to create things and not just being a passive recipient of information. And of course, in today's digital age, we are passive recipients of information to, to a level that has, you know, never been true before. And so I think being creative is also a bit of an antidote to uh, just constantly sort of receiving and consuming information. This is a way to be producing something ourselves as well. And really then is an opportunity to be so much more present in what we're doing as well, which can also be a really important 
counterbalance to the work that, that we do. But there's even, and you may be aware of this or some of the listeners might as well, but I just want to really quickly share, uh, you know, some some studies or at least one particular study that that's been done in animals just to show the importance of of play specifically you know so um there was a a study where they put young rats in cages uh only with adult rats who don't play so (laughs) there's there's a bit of an overlap with humans already right so they kept them away from the other young playful rats And then what they discovered was that those rats that were deprived of play, so they still had caregiving, but they didn't have that crucial play component, their their brains developed abnormally. So so abnormally, in fact, that they look like the brains of rats with a damaged prefrontal cortex. And then in another experiment, when they presented a cat odor to the rats, the rats who um, were able to play and the rats uh, who were deprived of play, um, the, the rats who were deprived of the play ran away right away from that cat odor. Their uh, cortisol levels spiked, their hearts were racing, um, and they didn't want to re-enter the situation. So only the rats who'd had that opportunity to play Reemerge, and actually, I should say, um, uh, maybe I should be be more clear. So, actually, in in both cases, all of the rats ran away, right? Natural instinct to the cat odor, but only the rats who uh, who hadn't been able to play, they stayed away. Only the rats who had been able to play went back into the situation. So. I mean, that that study is so profound on so yeah. many levels. Slightly yeah. off topic, but I mean, just thinking of, you know, the the uh, epidemic of anxiety that we're seeing among young people, right? And tracing backwards to sort of the uh, the the hyper um, hyper scheduling, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, a lot of families have engaged in. As we've got, you know, the two working parents, and they're both working hard, and you know, and we one of the responses to that we got to sort of pack everything into childhood as we possibly can, and everything's you know being you know um, you know structured, right? Mm-hmm. And the loss of that free time, right? And then of course, oh my gosh, now we've got the pandemic doing that to our kids as well, right? So like, you know, you're, you're literally in danger if you are with other children. And, you know, what a what an incredible impact this is going to have on, on anxiety in the future. I mean, that's going to be really challenging. Yeah. And yeah. of course, any child psychologist listening uh, is, 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 of course, going to be saying, yeah, obviously, <laughs> children need yeah. to be able to play. And, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah, this study obviously really underlines, uh, underlines that point that um, the play is so important, not just for a moment-to-moment experience, but for brain development as well, not to mention social development. And lest, lest we think that this only applies to children or to the young, right, Play is, is is really important for adults as well. It's actually what keeps Absolutely. the brain flexible, just as it helps for flexible brain development for children. And really, it, this comes back to creativity as well, because play is what enables um, our species to innovate, to be creative, right? Again, to kind of be more present, uh, to think about problems in new ways, and just continually adapt our behavior, right? And I mean, think about it, if more adults engaged in play, 
there would probably be a lot fewer problems in the world <laughs> if we were yeah. all um, allowing ourselves to inhabit that state a little bit more often. So, uh, so yeah, multiple reasons why why play is so important and creativity I mean, really combined. Yeah, and of course, you know, anxiety and irritability. I think biologically are sort of two sides of the same coin. I wonder, you know, if perhaps in 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 adults, it's irritability, right? That mm -hmm. would be the flip side of not getting enough play. You know, I think a lot of us tend to sort of, you know snap right get a little snippy with each other you know when we aren't taking care of ourselves and that per perhaps is some of the first things you know i think that that can emerge you know when we're not getting enough sleep when we're not getting enough food when we're not getting enough exercise or or indeed play right you know just downtime you know yeah fascinating what other things do you see like how do you how do people how should people be monitoring themselves to see whether or not they are getting enough self-care? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And I think it is so important. Um, you know, I think there's probably each of us have some individual early signs, early warning signs that's, that the balance is off or something needs to be tweaked or adjusted. Um, but, you know, I think for sure some of the, the things that you've already mentioned, right, feeling a bit more irritable, um, feeling that kind of sense of hyper arousal, um, canceling things that we know um, are um, important for our overall wellness, our, our work hours starting to encroach more and more, um, family relationships starting to, to tense. Um, reduced contact with friends. So I, I think there's a lot of, of warning signs. And I, I think I think really, first and foremost, it's important to to notice our work early warning signs. It, it's kind of funny when I was uh, still working at, at uh, the University of Manitoba, I came to learn that one of my warning signs was leaving my purse at various places. And, you know, when I think about it, it was a reflection, right? I was just obviously in my head more than I was in the moment. And, it, you know, during the course of, of one year, it got so, so funny. The security guards came to know me by name. And it's like, Karen, we found your purse again. And so for me, when I when I'm starting to do kind of mindless things, whether it's leaving my purse or, you know, constantly having to recheck whether I lock the door. That's for me, that's a really good sign that something is out of balance and I, and I really need to shift it. And, and so I think it is just important for us to be aware of those signs and even to do kind of a check-in with ourselves, just make a habit of doing it uh, at, at the end of the day or at the end of a week, whatever makes sense to us to just kind of see whether we need to uh, alter some of, some of what we're doing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it puts me in mind, too, that, you know, when, we, when we're not doing this, right, when we're not engaging in that self-care, you know, I, I, I think this is, you know, certainly my biggest risk, right, is I devote, you know, so many hours to clinical work. And every hour I devote to clinical work produces paperwork, whether it's, you know, the note that has to be done, obviously, but also that letter that has to get written, that referral that needs to be made, the assessment that needs to get sent in, you know, the clinical update that's required by, you know, the third party payer. Every single clinical hour produces this pile that needs to get done. 
And so part of my self-care has been I've started to uh, uh, to balance that, you know, as you know, very literally between clinical week, paperwork week, clinical week, paperwork week. And I can't do it 100 percent, obviously. Right. Depending on the clinical needs. But I mean, clearly, when I am overwhelmed with the paperwork, I'm a lot less efficient at the paperwork. Right. So the, 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 the more the demands increase, the more the demands increase. And it, it ends up being this, you know, vicious cycle all the time. And I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get through the paperwork and I'm not doing nearly as well at doing it efficiently because I'm so far behind and I'm so stressed out. And I, you know, and I, I you know, prioritizing is, I think, often the uh, one of the challenges as well. And yeah, but it, it's the mindfulness in a sense, right? That, you know, the capacity to be in the moment and focus on what you're doing, right? Fully and intentionally before you stop and move on, you know, whereas, you know, so often it's, you know, oh, I should start doing this. Oh, I forgot to do this. Oh, I, I better I have to make that phone call. And, you know, there's always these competing demands all the time. Absolutely. And I and I think, you know, your point about it, it fits really well with kind of time and energy, right? As our demands start increasing, it's really easy for us to say we don't have the time or the energy to do, uh, you know, to, to tend to our self-care. And, and I think really, and, and one of the messages we're really trying to promote with intentional therapists is uh, effective self-care doesn't need to take a lot of time or energy and in fact can actually uh, contribute to us having more time because we're working more efficiently and can contribute mm -hmm. to us having more energy. So, you know, the idea of micro self-care uh, it, you know, recognizing that anything that we do to kind of re-regulate our physiological system is self-care and it doesn't need to take a lot of time. Um, so the importance of that and, you know, for many of us, we might already be doing um, self-care practices, but we're diminishing their effectiveness by not doing them mindfully. Right. If we're if we're yes. if we're eating lunch, but we're doing reports at the same time, that's probably going to diminish the effect. Versus if we were to yeah. just mindfully enjoy our lunch, and you know, so I think I think all of those pieces are just so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about the the, the role of exercise. Like, how do we, you know, do, do you see that's an important part of it as well? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think maybe an even better term to use perhaps is just movement because of mm. course sometimes for some people exercise can have some negative connotations <laughs> and, and cause really it's about, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we've all experienced that at one time or another. Right. And it, it's so much more about movement, right? Because again, our yeah. bodies were designed to move. Our bodies aren't designed to be sitting all day long. And especially these days, throughout the pandemic with most of us working, uh, if not fully online, primarily online, uh, maybe even sitting even more than we did prior to the pandemic, because we're not necessarily even getting up to walk to a waiting room in between clients, right? You might right. just clicking a button and then you see your next client. And so, uh, so movement is, is so important. Uh, from just a basic, right, evolutionary physiological perspective, but also very much from the perspective of, as Karen mentioned earlier, just 
regulating our nervous system essentially, right? And allowing ourselves to have uh, opportunities to uh, maybe to, to discharge uh, pent up stress, uh, as well as just a, a change of activity, a change of focus, a change of scenery, uh, a change in um, you know just our heart rate. But also, really importantly, uh, again, what what some others have have called an opportunity to complete our stress cycle. So just being able to, uh, again, sort of on a, a, on a very intentional level, uh, work, you know, let our body work through everything that's been accumulating throughout a day or throughout a week. I mean, ideally we're doing this probably on a, a daily basis. And again, it doesn't have to mean an hour at the gym. It can mean a 10 minute walk, um, or even something that Karen and I recently discovered is, uh, chair dancing. <laughs> chair some, dancing. Yeah. There's some great videos online. Uh, sometimes they're called chair yoga dancing, uh, or even in sometimes called a wheelchair exercise class or a chair exercise class, but they're fantastic. And actually a great opportunity to get some movement, even if you're not getting up from your desk. Right. Um, right. And it's, right. it's just, a opportunity to be moving our body to be using our body in in ways that it's it's intended to be used uh and and also i think a uh a great um benefit of of movement as well is it's 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 kind of like a little win right um when you go for a walk or do some push-ups or you know, do a yoga pose. Again, it doesn't have to be an extended period of time. Even just these small, short moments of movement are, right, they're changing the state of our body and importantly, cognitively sending ourselves a message, I can do this. And maybe even more importantly, I can do something that's a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because of course, that's a big barrier for many people. Exercise isn't necessarily always the most enjoyable thing to be doing. Yes. It's, yeah. you know, physically difficult or uncomfortable, or it makes us sweaty or whatever it might be that is related to the discomfort for us. And so yeah. every time we can engage in that, it is like we're pushing through a little barrier of discomfort and right. What a powerful message to ourselves. Okay. Right. I am the kind of person who can push through that discomfort. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's putting in my, you know, my chair, I have one of these, um, uh, well, I have to get in my obligatory Star Trek reference, okay? So, you know, every single podcast, I eventually have to get around to Star Trek. This is my moment now. You know, so you picture like Captain Kirk's original chair, like this very square thing with the sides, right? And, you know, it, I, that's the kind of chair I would sit in all day long. And I was getting, you know, you know, back problems and, you know, hip problems and this kind of a thing. And I would try to twist myself around in it and sit like this. I was getting neck, you know, this kind of a thing. And I ended up getting a different updated Star Trek chair, right? Which is literally, it's a, it's one that's used on uh, the set of uh, Voyager and it shows up in uh, the next generation and this kind of a thing. And it's a chair which is actually designed to be ever so slightly uncomfortable. So that it's constantly encouraging a shift in position, right? And you can, you can, it's designed to be sat in wrong, right? And it, it actually, I do notice a real difference in my body. Again, as you say, just from that little micro shift, 
right? It changes the energy again. And, it, you know, it's, it's my, my body is, is so much less, you know, stressed, you know, by, because yeah, this is a job, but holy cow. I mean, I, there are days when I'm, I'm not in my chair for eight hours. I'm in my chair for 15, right? I mean, it's incredible how much time sometimes I mean, I, I come back to the office. I, you know, I go home, you know, have dinner, come back to the office, you know, to, to work on the paperwork and this kind of a thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible, right? What, what, you know, we end up putting ourselves through sometimes, you know? Yeah. I want to highlight too, just off a point um, related to kind of discomfort and exercise and, and some of the benefits with that. I, I think it's also just it's so important to, to remember that self-care isn't really necessarily about just doing the things that make us feel good. Sometimes it's about things that are uncomfortable to do and we just need to keep doing them. Like, yeah. like setting boundaries, right? Or uh, yes. raising our fees so that we're fairly complicated yeah. for our work. And I, I think so often yeah. we think of self-care as just, right, the spa days, the massages, things that just make us feel very comfortable. But it's also about doing things that make us feel uncomfortable and, and continuing to do them until we start feeling comfortable with them. So that, that's just such a, an important piece as well. And there, I think, you know, you're, you're really touching on something which I think is probably, again, on that, that gender divide. I think there's a, you know, for any of us, right, you know, especially in, you know, these days, I think, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> narcissism is widely and easily spotted in the world today. And, you know, self-care can sound narcissistic, right? To say I'm important, you know, doesn't sound right. You know, but that's exactly what it's about, isn't it? It's about recognizing that, you know, if we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're not meeting our own needs, right, it's no one else is going to do that, mm -hmm. right? It's so important for us to be able to do that. And that probably is something which is generally more encouraged among men than it is among women. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, I, I think that probably still is the case. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So what are some of the uh, personal barriers each of you face in terms of engaging in your own self-care? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And I think it's so important for us really to be honest about that. Right. Because by being honest about our own struggles, that's how conversations start. And, you know, certainly for me, uh, it really depends when you ask me that question. So asking it now, um, some of my particular personal barriers have been related to just heightened uh, caregiving demands, both at work, um, because I've certainly seen just an influx of previous clients wanting to return for um, psychological services in the in the midst of the pandemic. And, you know, I, I always really want to um, make room for previous clients. It's just, you know, something that I value. And so doing that has led to me working more hours than I would normally work. So that's made it a bit more challenging. And the other caregiving demands have been in my personal life. Unfortunately, my, my elderly parents have just had a lot of health issues, hospitalizations, etc. during during the pandemic 
that's, that's made it more challenging and, and the pandemic itself has made it more challenging, right? To respond to those. It hasn't been as easy to reach out to other people to help me with that because of some of the restrictions. So, you know, those, those increased caregiving roles for me or demands have really been challenging because with it comes some limiting beliefs, right? That, um, you know, in this time of need, it's kind of selfish to to put myself first sometimes, uh, or or the belief that you know it's easier for me to do it, so I should just be the one doing it, um, or me believing often probably quite naively that I'm better at these things, so I should just be doing them. So for me, those you know over the past year have been have been my particular personal challenges to to fitting self care in. Yeah, I definitely identify with a lot of what Karen said as well in terms of uh, just the impact of the pandemic, in terms of client needs. And and then, of course, for myself, having a young child, there's been various periods throughout the pandemic where he has been at home, uh, not able, uh, we don't have access to other childcare. Uh, and so, right, there's been some really challenging days and weeks as a result of trying to balance all of that, right? And of course, uh, you know, I've probably experienced that on a, a, a small scale compared to what many people have gone through in the past year and a half trying to juggle childcare and work. And, um, and, and so certainly that uh, has presented uh, some, some challenges that were probably not even on my radar pr- previous to the, the pandemic in terms of, of self-care. Uh, and, and I think, again, a Going back to Karen's uh, comments about the limiting beliefs, I think time is is so easily cast as the scapegoat for why we can't fit in self care, right? As, especially with childcare responsibilities during the pandemic. But I, I think it's really it's less so about time and about not being intentional with time, and that's certainly something that I've uh, maybe had varying success with over the, the time of the pandemic, but really trying to be aware of, okay, um, you know what? I do have time to go for a 10 minute, 15 minute walk at nine o'clock at night. I maybe don't feel like doing it, but that's different from not actually having time to go do it. And then when I do it, it feels so good. It feels so much better than having sat on the couch for those same 15 minutes and watched the news or scrolling on the internet or, you know, social media. And so just really being aware that even when it seems like there's not necessarily time or energy, um, there often is. And we just have to be, again, kind of like Karen was saying earlier, being willing to kind of do the thing that's a little bit uncomfortable because ultimately it is, it is really going to be a lot better for us. And, and, you know, something that I've even done during the pandemic uh, even as recently as, as last week, uh, I've, I've even just walked in our backyard, um, sometimes even in the living room, <laughs> if I'm just trying to get some extra movement in the day. Uh, and, 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 you know, even just the walking in the backyard often sort of paired with listening to podcasts and your comment earlier about looking up, like it is such a lovely experience on a beautiful summer evening to look up and see the stars or see the moon or just, 
you know, see the trees and it's calm and it's quiet. It's not cold, right? It's, um, it's actually a really lovely experience. And so, right, even these things that, and, and, and I have to say that is not something I probably would have done before the pandemic. But it sort of yeah. forced a little bit of creativity and thinking outside the box around that. You said something that sort of leapt out at me, which was, uh, I, I, I can't remember exactly the right words, but it was sort of like compared to others, right? Mm. Compared to others, we've got it good. And let's face it, mm. this is a great job, right? We are, you know, we're, we're well paid, you know, we're well educated, you know, we're well respected. And we, our job pretty much consists of sitting down and having conversations with people, right? And it's so easy for us, I think, to denigrate whatever our own experience is. But we have to recognize that that's something which is true for everybody, right? You know, just because someone else has it worse than us doesn't mean that we are not also deserving of and needing that self-care. And I want to thank you for putting together this fantastic resource, intentionaltherapist.ca. Dr. Karen Dick and Dr. Melissa Tyson. Tyson, 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 thank you. <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to get through that without doing that again. You know, But thank you so much for, uh, for, uh, for being with us today. And I, I really appreciate it. I hope it was a good experience for you. And uh, yeah, and uh, by all means, uh, check out our other uh, podcasts. And, uh, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you next time. I could tell you all about how Jane is thoughtfully designed practice management software, but you can head over to jane.app and see that all for yourself. What you might not see there, though, is us, the team behind Jane. Your team, if you'll let us be. From our developers to our support staff and everyone in between, we're all obsessed with being the best that we can be. For you. To see Jane and the rest of the team in action, join us at jane.app and book a one-on-one demo. Or sign up for a one-month grace period using code OPA1MO. Talk to you soon. You have been listening to On Psych, presented by the Ontario Psychological Association. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Mm-hmm.